I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, 1 and 2. That has been occupying us and will occupy us for some time as we attempt to plumb the depths of this marvelous passage of Scripture, which I said to you last time was, as it were, a bridge between all that Paul has taught us before in Romans 1 to 11 and all that will be taught to us in chapter 12, verse 3, all the way through chapter 15, verse 13. And you remember last time that we delved into Romans chapter 12, verse 1, we said to you that the first part of our message gave us in Romans 12, 1, the exhortative prescription for how we are to live as a sacrifice unto God. And we went into great detail about living as a sacrifice and all that Romans 12.1 was telling us as an exhortative prescription to live in a way that is pleasing to God. This morning, and possibly for some other mornings to come, I want to turn the corner now on the ethical practicality, the actual how-to of living as a sacrifice. And of course, it is contained for us in Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now there is a lot here. And I want to talk this morning and in other times together about this concept of the Christian and his or her mind. This is a major stepping off place for us because we live in a culture in which the Christian mind, it seems, is almost gone. And I want to spend a great deal of time talking about the Christian and his or her use of their mind. And I would start this morning by humorously reading for you something that is not what I want to focus upon with regard to the Christian mind. It starts like this. Dear Sir, I'm writing in response to your request for additional information. In block number three of the accident reporting form, I put, quote, lost presence of mind, unquote, as the cause of my accident. You said in your letter that I should explain more fully, and I trust that the following details will be sufficient. I am a bricklayer by trade. On the day of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a six-story building. When I completed my work, I discovered that I had about 500 pounds of brick left over. Rather than carry the bricks down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel by using a pulley, which fortunately was attached to the side of the building at the sixth floor. Securing the rope at ground level, I went up to the roof, swung the barrel out, and loaded the bricks into it. Then I went back to the ground and untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 500 pounds of bricks. You will note in block number 11 of the accident reporting form that I weigh 135 pounds. Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded at a, at a rather rapid rate up the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming down. This explains the fractured skull and broken collarbone. Slowed only slightly, I continued my rapid ascent, not stopping until the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep into the pulley. Fortunately, by this time, I had regained my presence of mind 
and was able to hold tightly to the rope in spite of my pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Devoid of the weight of bricks, the barrel now weighed approximately 50 pounds. I refer you again to my weight in block number 11. As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming up. This accounts for the two fractured ankles and the lacerations of my legs and lower body. This encounter with the barrel slowed me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell into the pile of bricks and fortunately only three vertebra were cracked. I am sorry to report, however, that as I lay there on the bricks, in pain, unable to stand, and watching the empty barrel six stories above above me, I again lost presence of mind. I let go of the rope. Now, there are a lot of things we could talk about with regard to the Christian mind, and hopefully that isn't one of them. The Christian mind is incredibly important. And Paul says here, in a very straightforward way, regarding the ethical practicality of how to live as a sacrifice unto God, that exhortative prescription that he gives us here in verse 1, where he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, ethically speaking, practically speaking, this is the how of how you're to do the what of living as a sacrifice. And it is here by way of a negative command. And it is this. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. This is the first how of living as a sacrifice in the 21st century as a Christian. Paul shows us how, very practically speaking, how we must resist allowing the world to squeeze us into its mold. And he says, first, by way of this negative command or negative prohibition, we must fight against the schema of the world. Schema, the English word in our text is conformed, which is derived from the Greek word schema, which Paul uses here of this term, the world. And instead of being shaped by their schemes, he says, we must resist the satanic devices that are all about us. This evil world in which we live, and that's, by the way, what this concept of the world means. It's the world's evil system. It's the cosmos of evil. And this evil world perpetually attempts to press us into its ways and its habits of thinking and of acting. And we must continually, Paul says, resist the tremendous pressure to be conformed to this present evil age, which, if it could, it would seek to totally devastate our faith. And he says we must, however, see that we have been forever transferred from one realm to another. Do you remember what we talked about when I taught you Romans chapter 6? where it talks there about being totally dominated and totally and completely influenced by the world before we come to Christ. Our souls being engulfed and being saturated by the evil system of the world. But Paul goes on in Romans 6 to say that we have been set free from the law of sin and death because Jesus Himself has delivered us from the world through spiritual regeneration. Don't you remember when we studied both Romans 5 and 6 how Paul taught us there that when we were delivered from our sin, we were transferred out of the realm of Adam, out of his domain, out of the fallenness of his life and our life in him, and that we were delivered from that life, that realm, that status, that dominion, and we were transferred out of that realm into the realm of Christ, which is the realm of life, 
the realm of spiritual awakenings, the dominion, we could call it, of grace. That's our status change. And I think that is exactly what is in Paul's mind when he comes here to Romans 12.2. The same concept, only now he's applying it very practically to the ethical dimension of our lives as Christians. And he, in essence, says this, theologically, you were transferred into a completely new realm of existence from Adam to Christ And he says now here in Romans 12 that because of the clear implications of that theology, now here is the practicality of the devotional aspect of your life. The practical dimension of your life. The ethical dimension of it. Where your behavior now must conform to your status. You've been transferred already. Now, make the practical and ethical dimensions of your life match up to that transfer of status. That's what he's saying. Live up to the reality of what is true about you theologically. That's what he's saying. That is, you must no longer be conformed to this evil age. Why? Because you've been transferred from it. You've been taken out of that realm, out of the realm of Adam. How can you live any longer in it when you've been transferred through regeneration by Christ into the realm in which you now live? In other words, whereas in Romans 5 and 6, you were, as it were, said to be transferred, theologically speaking, from Adam's realm of sin to Christ's realm of grace... So you must now match in action and behavior the practical outworking of the Lordship of Christ in your life. He became your Lord and now He pervades your life as Lord and you listen to His commands and your, your character is ethically transformed. That's how the two are linked. That's, in essence, all that has come before in Romans 1-11. to And now in chapter 12, he turns, the hinge is turning, and he says, now live up to the status of your declaration. What has been declared about you. Now, having said that, we have a problem. And the problem is, That while we would even ourselves want to say, we would desire to say, even as Paul says in Romans 7, I desire this desperately to see this change as a result of my status, to see this ethical dimension become more progressively true in my life. I want to see that. I desperately desire to see that. But here is my problem. I have sin in my life. What theologians call indwelling sin or remaining sin in my life. And it involves for me and for every Christian the process or the progress of spiritual transformation. As we come to faith in Christ, we are indeed in a new realm of existence, but we're not so totally new that we could said to be perfectly and fully mature in our new newness in Christ. In other words, when you and I came to faith in Christ, whenever that was for you and for me, at that very moment, while we praise God that we were declared new in Christ and the transformative work of Jesus Christ began immediately after we were declared righteous in Christ, the dilemma is we weren't totally new. We weren't perfectly new. We weren't in that state even though we're now changed into a different status, our state is that we are not so totally new in Christ that there's no progression at all. In fact, it really begins the battle, doesn't it? The battle begins at that very moment. We're in a brand new dimension. We're in a brand new dimension of Jesus Christ's holy and perfect realm. And He says, live up to it. But we have a dilemma, and that dilemma is, as I've said to you before, the already and the not yet. I'm already in Christ. I'm already headed for glory. I'm already going to be 
in the fully glorified state of definitive sanctification. It is true if I'm in Christ. The problem is I just haven't arrived there. I'm supposed to be working in my sanctification for that time when I will be yet completely and fully mature. And there is remaining in me a sinfulness for which I am becoming so acutely aware that is still devilish. It is so incredibly wicked. And so I live and I move and I fight and I scratch and I claw in order to mature and progress in the realm of the already not yet dimension. I'm already in Christ, but I'm not so already in Christ that there's not yet a struggle with sin. There is that struggle. And that's why Paul says right here in Romans 12:2 that we must first, and he starts out with the negative, here's the prohibition, do not be conformed any longer to this evil world. Now, I've been thinking a lot about that. Not so much to teach it to you, but to try to figure it out for my own life. How is it, Lance, that you, even though theologically you've been transferred into a completely new realm of existence, out of the realm of Adam, into the realm of Christ, how is it, practically speaking, that you can no longer be conformed to the evil system of this world? Now that, my friend, is the $64,000 question. What does it mean to no longer be conformed to this world? I mean, we have to determine what things, negatively speaking, we must put off before we can understand even the dimension of all of the good things we must put on. To borrow Paul's phrase in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, how do we do it? How progressively, practically, ethically can I not allow the world to squeeze me into its mold? There is tremendous pressure on us all, if we name the name of Christ, not to allow the world's evil system to press me, to mold me, to shape me into its very image. And I would submit to you that the first and foremost way that we not allow ourselves to be conformed to the image of this world is to battle indwelling sin. To battle indwelling sin. And to set the table for us this morning on this matter, I start with a quote from Wayne Mack's new book, A Fight to the Death. Talking about, of course, dealing with sin, especially indwelling sin. And he says this very helpfully. Quote, they say that ignorance is bliss. That may be true when it comes to knowing how many calories are in an ice cream cone. But when it comes to things that are really important, ignorance is dangerous. Ignorance is certainly dangerous when it comes to the subject of sin. One of the reasons we play with sin is that we are ignorant about how dangerous it is. To make matters worse, we are ignorant about how ignorant we are about sin. We know sin is bad, but the way we live makes it clear that we do not know how terrible it really is. Yes, that's so very true. Dr. Mack is right about how ignorant many Christians are about the nature of indwelling sin. Now, it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be this way because listen to what the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians about Satan and about how he deceives us into sin. In the context of forgiveness regarding someone who was truly repentant in the church in Corinth, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, these words, What I, Paul, have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, here it is, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. And then he says this, For we, Christians, are not ignorant of His designs. Now how many of us would say as Christians, 
I know my Bible and I know myself in such a way that I could declare like Paul about himself and like he's implying about all other Christians that I am not ignorant of Satan's wiles, Satan's devices, Satan's designs. How many of you would say by the raising of your hand that you know Satan's most tempting ways, you know his cunning nature, you know his wicked devices, you know his schemes, and you're not ignorant of them. Well, I'm a little skeptical. I'm a little skeptical because look at Christianity in general. Look at professing evangelicalism in general. It seems to me we're not only ignorant of the schemes of Satan, we've fallen for them hook line and sinker. Listen again to Dr. Mack. What doctrine might Satan want to attack most? It is no surprise that Satan is relentless in his attack on what the Bible teaches about sin. By simply tampering with the doctrine of sin, he is able to make chaos of the Christian faith. If he, can get to, uh, if he can get us to think erroneously or even superficially about sin, he has us where he wants us. He knows that if we have a wrong understanding of sin, we will have a wrong understanding of everything else. Yes, that's right. Thomas Brooks, one of the old Puritans, who wrote a book that I have in my library that is dog-eared and ripped up and written in because it has been so helpful to me in my Christian life, which has a great title. Puritans always had great titles to their books, sometimes far too long for you to, to actually capture, even sometimes on one page. Nevertheless, this great title, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. It's one of those Puritan paperbacks that the Banner of Truth has reprinted. And this is what he says, Thomas Brooks. Satan knows that if he should present sin in its own nature and dress, the soul would rather fly from it than yield to it. And so he presents sin to us, not in its true colors, but painted over with the name virtue. That we may more be easily overcome by it. That is so true. Satan is so cunning and so, so strategic in his sinful devices that if he just simply presented sin to us in its own nature and dress, as Thomas Brooks would say, we would rather fly from it than yield to it. So what he does is he paints over the evil of sin with not its own true colors, but with the colors of virtue. And so, when we pursue it, we are caught. And we don't fly from it, we fly to it. And we're overcome so easily by it. J.I. Packer writes this, Sin's strategy is to induce a false sense of security as a prelude for a surprise attack. Sin is always at work in the heart. A temporary lull in its assaults means not that it is dead, but that it is very much alive. And then Packer quotes another Puritan, John Owen, Sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet. And its waters are for the most part deep when they are still. Ever seen the ocean when it seems to be so placid and serene on the surface and yet there is a riptide underneath that would pull you under and drown you forever? Oh, this is so true. You look at professing evangelicalism and you see their flirtations with sin. I just read over the weekend and probably so many of you did as well about Ted Haggard, president of the National Association of Evangelicals, a group that is at best very shaky theologically, with an announced membership of some 30 million. Did you realize that there were 30 million evangelicals in this country? That's a joke. Ted Haggard, pastor of New Life Church in the Colorado Springs area, 14,000 members. Ted Haggard speaking on national radio and television programs about the evils of homosexuality and about the problems of the issue of 
marriage today and the one man, one woman doctrine of marriage himself apparently and even through some acknowledgement on his own now about his own uh, flirtations with drugs has been alleged to have had a three-year relationship with a male prostitute. Resigned from his church, resigned from the NAE. Yes, sin is insidious. And I suspect that the one thing we need to say to ourselves in answer to the question, how may I not be conformed to this world, is to first and foremost understand this pervasive, insidious temptation that is in us through our own indwelling sin. Let me give you some practical categories. This has always been helpful to me. Always been helpful in the sense of, well, then how do I get my arms wrapped around this idea of indwelling sin? How do I battle it? How do I not allow the world's evil system to encroach upon my life? Let me give you some categories that might help you very, help you very practically as we conclude our message this morning. Here's the first one. The no one will know category. The no one will know category. This is the nature of sin. This is the nature of temptation. This is what indwelling sin does. This is how we are tragically conformed to the pattern of this world, at least to some degree, and sometimes even to a large degree. And it's what I call the no one will know category. This is the category where some Christians assume that they can be so isolated from accountability and the observation of others that they are satanically lulled into thinking that they can get away with something because no one else is looking. No one else around them is seeing anything. If you read the news reports, and if they are accurate, and they may not be, with Ted Haggard, the idea when he first became involved with this male prostitute was to use a payphone so that his number could not be recorded on the ID. Can you imagine someone like that who's in a very prominent professing evangelical position who assumes, wrongly assumes, that you could go to a payphone in order to be isolated and not to be observed? Who's observing him? God. Shouldn't that be enough for us? Shouldn't that be enough for us that we know that God is watching? Do we really honestly think that as believers in Jesus Christ, those who profess to know Christ, that we could go to a payphone and call someone and do our little deeds and that we will not be found out. God knows that. God knows what we're doing. How wrong that is. If for nothing else, say to yourself, even if you think you've been able to fool everybody else, your own family, your own friends, your own church, God is watching. God is seeing what I'm doing. And please, even if you somehow wrongly in your own thinking can presume upon the grace of God that even though He's watching and that you think you still are able to somehow live with your sin in that way, know this, the Word of God says, you will inevitably be found out. Listen to the truth of what Moses told the children of Israel in Numbers chapter 32, verse 23b. Numbers 32, verse 23 you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Stamp that in your minds. Know this in your heart. If I do evil, if I flirt with sin, if I curry the favor of indwelling sin in my heart, know this, be sure your sin will find you out. God is watching and you may think you can fool people around you, but you can't. Your sin will find you out. How can you guarantee that one so-called little sin will not give way to another sin? You can't. And by yielding to a lesser sin, how can we think that we'll be able with this compromise to withstand the greater temptation when it comes by? You think you can do battle with indwelling sin by saying yes to the little sins, so much so that when the greater sins come by, you can say, self-righteously so, oh, I would never fall for that. 
course you will. Slow, spiritual compromise always begins with the giving in to little sins first. Mark it down. Slow, spiritual compromise always begins with the giving in to little sins first. Again, the Puritans were fabulous in helping us here. If they had the greatest contribution in the history of the church to a doctrine, it would be the doctrine of indwelling sin. Listen to one of them. Sin is of an encroaching nature. It creeps on the soul by degrees, step by step, till it has the soul to the very height of sin. That's why it's said in Song of Solomon 2.15, warns us, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. That's where we get that phrase. It's the little foxes that spoil the vine. It's the little things, the little sins spoil us until we give in to the big sins. You see, I could ask you the question, how do you resist being conformed to the image of this world if you're playing around with sin in the category of no one will know? Don't be fooled into thinking no one knows. God knows. The highest of heaven knows. The angels know. Your own conscience knows. And pretty soon somebody else is going to know too. Secondly, the second kind of category that I use to help me not be conformed to the world, this is what I call the casual glance category. Not the casual lance category. Glance. Let me enunciate clearly. The casual glance category. Do you remember King David's sin with Bathsheba? Turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is under what I call the casual glance category. 2 Samuel chapter 11. You probably know it well. Verse 1, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, which presumably I assume that that verse is there because that's what David may have been supposed to be doing. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. So they all went out except their king, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Verse 2, it happened, not happenstance, it, it happened under the banner of the providence of God, nonetheless, late one afternoon, when David rose, arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw. Casual glance. From the roof, a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent, that's the second sin, and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And again, I presume that verse 3 was the inquiring of someone for whom David sent and said, check her out. I want to know who she is. She's very beautiful. And presumably, again, the answer came back, isn't she married to someone else? That's one thing I use in my mind not to be conformed to the world. I say to myself with my own glances, and you can't poke your own eyes out. You have to live in this world with your own eyeballs. But you can say to yourself, especially you men, especially you young men, that is somebody else's wife. I will not have her. She belongs to someone else. I can't think about that. I can't ponder that. I can't allow a casual glance to move into a studied position of lust. Why? Because that person belongs to somebody else. In the providence of God, that person hasn't been given to me. Only one person, my wife Beth, has been given to me. And I'm to be satisfied with her and she with me. And I cannot allow the casual glance to come to a place where I then move forward in the inquiring stage and even ignore the warning sign of a person who comes back, whether or not it's a person itself, himself, or even my own conscience, and say, aren't they married to someone else? So David sent messengers, maybe even the same messengers, and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. 
And she returned to her house, and again sometime later, obviously, verse 5, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And then the real trouble began. Now, contrast that. That's the casual glance category. Contrast that in your Bibles at Genesis 39. And that familiar story of Joseph. This is, this is downright practical stuff, isn't it? This is where we're living. This is where all of us, whether it's the men with their eyes or the ladies with their hearts, are battling internally. Whether it's the men who want to have those for their very own, or it's the wife who wants to fantasize about what else she might be able to have. Joseph says, chapter 39, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, verse 1, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And this is a key, my friends, this is a key. The Lord was with Joseph, verse 2, and he became a successful man. That means that he trusted in the Lord, that he depended on the Lord. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to be successful in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight, and he attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, and put him in charge of all that he had from the time that he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was all on all that he had in house and field. That's a major blessing. The Egyptian was no fool. He understood. Look, this is a, this is a shower of blessing that's happening to me because of this young man and his God. Verse 6, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. He had no concerns. He had no issues. He believed that Joseph was a man of integrity and that Joseph would not do anything. Verse 6, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now why does the Bible tell us that? Because it wants us to show the reality of the story. He was a good-looking man. He was a young man. Verse 7, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph. Not completely, of course, like David. David was the one looking down upon Bathsheba. She's looking up at Joseph and saying, he's a good-looking fella. Verse 8, I love it. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself. That's the one thing you can't do, Joseph, because you are his wife. See where I get this idea? I'm not to have her because she's not my wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You see, he had divine accountability, didn't he? He knew that God was watching, you see. And notice this. Does, does God allow in his great providence the success of Joseph's life? Yes. But does that mean the absence of temptation? No. Verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day. Now, how many of us would have yielded far sooner. How many of us would have said, well, look, I mean, day after day, Lord, I mean, what, what, was, what was I supposed to do? I mean, it was coming at me in droves. I mean, how could I say no to this when day after day she was coming at me? But verse 10 says, He would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. That's how you answer either the casual glance or the repeated temptation. You have divine accountability. You say, God is watching. I go through a checklist in my own life and it goes something like this. How can I do this against my God? How can I do this against my wife? How can I do this in front of my children? What if I were paraded out in front of my entire family, my extended family, my mother, my sister, my father... And I were to do all of these things that I'm being tempted to do in secret, and I would be paraded in public as a public minister of the gospel. How can I do such a thing? And after you go through your little checklist like that, 
If you're like me, you're saying to yourself, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to... I'm not going to throw away my whole ministry because of that. I'm not going to be involved in this kind of sin that will destroy everything. How can I stand before the Bible church of Little Rock and tell them that I'm clean and that I'm a man of God and that I love Jesus Christ with all my heart and yet I'm compromising in the secret places all because either the casual glance or the repeated temptations of my life. I can't. can't do it. Oh, but no one will know. Yes, they will. I'll know. God will know. Be sure that my sin will find me out. Don't do it. And if you're doing it right now, you better stop doing it. If you're involved in sin, whether it's sexual sin or any kind of other sin, you better stop doing it. Because how do you know that if you keep on doing it, that you're not actually still in the world? I mean, you say... Preach it. Preach it. We should not be conformed to the world. Are you conformed to the world? Are you involved in secret sin? This is the place where it all starts. It's that casual glance. You ought to do like Job. Job 31.1 I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? And a little temptation will lead to a lot of sin. And then it will seek to destroy you. And that's what Satan's all about. We're not ignorant of his schemes. You want to learn how not to be conformed to the world? Don't have that casual glance. Fight it. Kill it. Do whatever you have to do. Third category. The it's no big deal category. The it's no big deal category. Well, look, I mean, you're saying that this is a serious issue and I would say to some degree it is, but come on. I mean, you've, been, you've even been quoting these Puritans. You sound puritanical yourself. I mean, come on, lighten up. You know, that's very popular today, isn't it? Look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. This is under what I call the it's a big deal category. So much so is a big deal. Matthew chapter 5 Verse 27, that from the lips of Jesus Himself, He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here's the seriousness of it. Here's why it's a big deal. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Jesus obviously speaking hyperbolically, but He's speaking hyperbolically because of the seriousness of this. It is a big deal. He says it is better that you lose one of your members like your eyeball than that your whole body be thrown into hell. You know what He's saying? If you so flirt with the world, if you are in such a conforming practice with the world that you're not dealing seriously with your eyeballs, then your eyeballs are going to take all of your members into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And I center in, of course, on this issue of the eyes because we are in a sensate culture. The sensation through our senses is incredibly tempting. Television, radio, magazines, internet, iPods. In fact, they're so numerous and they come with such rapid fire succession, I don't even know the latest gadget. But it's coming. That's why I guess, look at chapter 6, Jesus says, verse 22, right after talking about the treasure of our heart, He says this, Matthew 6, 22, The eye is the lamp of the body. Isn't that interesting? The eye is the lamp of the body. So, if your eye is healthy, that means you're looking at the right stuff, you're not looking at the wrong stuff, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. In other words, what are you allowing to come through your eye gate? 
If then the light in you is darkness, he says, how great is the darkness. You say, well, what's the Christian's responsibility in terms of light? Look back at chapter 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. Wait a minute. If I'm the light of the world, then how could I as a Christian be conformed to the world? I'm supposed to be the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. Somebody's no dummy. They don't light a light to try to light up a room or set a city on a hill with all of its lights to light up the progress of the city by putting it under a basket. They put it on a stand. They put it on a hill. And it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It is a big deal. Don't fall prey to the it's no big deal category. Packer again states this, Sin lies so camouflaged in the darkness of the mind in the indisposition of the will and in the worldliness of the affections that no eye can discover it. The best of our wisdom, the best of our wisdom is but to look out for its first appearances. And what do you do when the first appearances of that sin come? You just hack it to death. It's like hacking Agag. You just hack Agag to pieces. You just kill it. You stomp on it. You say, I don't want to be involved in it. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3, with regard to all of those vices that he lists there, he says, kill it. Mortify it. Put it to death. Don't let it even be named among you. Here's the fourth category. The I can handle it category. Oh, no, no. I I can handle it. I can handle it. I can come up, I'm so good, to the very throes of temptation without falling in. Really? 1 Corinthians 10.12 Take heed that pride of yours lest you fall. If you don't want to fall, my friends, don't walk where it's slippery. Know your limitations. Know where you can go. Know where you can't go. Know what you can do. Know what you cannot do. Does it not say in James chapter 4, friendship with the world is hostility to God. If you're conforming yourself to the world's evil system, you're an enemy of God. And then he later says in James chapter 4, verses 4 to 10, God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Say to your indwelling sin, I fear you. I fear you. Indwelling sin, like it's the personification of a person. And you're doing battle with yourself, with this person of your heart, the the wickedness that is within you, and say to yourself, I fear sin. I battle it. Paul says, "I I don't box aimlessly. I box in order to hit the target. I want to be able to run the race to fight the good fight of faith. And I don't want to do it in such a proud way that I can say, look, I I can handle this. The very moment your heart says, I can handle that, you just lost it. You've already been defeated. Say rather to yourself, I can't handle this. I can't do it. I can't go there. I can't watch this. I can't do this. It's going to make me sin. It's going to make me dishonor my Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to be involved in this conforming element of the world and its allurements. I'm not going to do it. Here's the last category. Here's the one we all should say about ourselves. The I know myself only too well category. I know myself only too well. Turn in our 
final scripture of the morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is, this is what we should think. This is how we should battle our indwelling sin. And I haven't even really touched the surface. Say to yourself in the category of your heart that I don't trust my indwelling sin as much as I could throw it. I don't trust it at all. What should be my motivation? 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we, we believers, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You say, wait a minute, I thought I was already judged at Calvary. That's true. This is the kind of judgment of the evaluation of your life. This is how you lived your life in the body. And we must all, he says, appear before the judgment seat, the evaluation seat of Christ, so that each one, each individual Christian, may receive what is due, there's a reckoning, for what he has done in the body, whether good, and this says evil, I like the translation from this Greek word, phallos, what is good or worthless. Because when you stand before Jesus Christ, evil will have been judged, but worthlessness will be evaluated. And if you're living in some of the areas of your life in a worthless condition, it's not only not good, it's, it's worthless. It's the stuff that's going to burn. It's the evaluation that's going to come at your life so that even in a sense, if you stand before Jesus Christ and you think you have some good works to present to Him, and so as by fire, it consumes the worthless deeds. Oh, there's going to be good. There's going to be good for every Christian who stands before Christ. But don't have the mindset, well, I'm going to bring my one or two good things before Christ. Because I'm in. At least I'm in. Please do not have the skin of your teeth theology. It's a bad, bad record. Sin is a plague. Yes, the greatest and most infectious plague in the world. And yet, how few are there that tremble at it, that keep a distance from it. Don't have worthless works. Be at the greatest distance from worthless deeds as you possibly can. And do what Thomas Brooks says. He says, now look, think of this. Live your life now as though you're going to stand before God in eternity. Live your life now as though eternity is in view. And here's what he says. For, speaking of eternity, for that is where sin will be unmasked. Think of it that way. That is where sin will be unmasked. Its dress and robes will be taken off and then you will see it for what it is. A vile, filthy, terrible, evil, more evil than hell itself. Think of that. Think when you go to eternity that when sin is utterly and finally unmasked, you'll see it for what it really is. And when you see this vile and wretched and terrible evil of this world, you say to yourself, I don't want that. I don't want that. He says that which formerly appeared most sweet will then appear most bitter. That which appeared most beautiful will appear most ugly. And that which appeared most delightful will then appear most dreadful to the soul. He says when you look at sin, indwelling sin, we're not even talking about in one sense the sin that other people commit, the sin of this world, worldliness. We're talking about indwelling sin here. A vile, filthy, terrible evil, he says, more evil than hell itself. As we close this morning, I trust that you've seen in these brief categories how not to be conformed to the world. And maybe it's the case with you that you're being conformed to the world because you're still in the world. You've never been transferred out of the realm of Adam. You're still in Adam. I beg you to come to Christ. If you say about your life, I'm being conformed to the image of this world because I'm still in the world, I say, there's a remedy for you. There's a way for you to be delivered from the world. And that is to turn from your sin. To acknowledge the way you've been living and to say before a holy, righteous, perfect God, I've been conformed to the world. 
And I want to be rid of it. I want to say to God, I don't want to live this way anymore. Well, you can be reconciled to God. When you stand before Him in eternity, do you want to stand before Him as someone who's been a friend of the world and therefore His enemy? Or do you want to stand before Him as His friend? Someone who lives His way and does His bidding. I close with this. If you haven't received via your email account Charles Haddon Spurgeon's morning and evening devotions, you ought to. For the morning of October 14th, just as I was preparing for Romans 12, 1 and 2, Spurgeon says this, under the title, and do not be conformed to this world, Romans 12, 2, if a Christian can by possibility be saved while he conforms to this world, at any rate it must be so as by fire, such a bare salvation is almost as much to be dreaded as desired. Reader, would you wish to leave this world in the darkness of a desponding deathbed and enter heaven as a shipwrecked mariner climbs the rocks of his native country? Then be worldly. Be mixed up with mammonites, serving God and mammon, and refuse to go without the camp bearing Christ's reproach. But would you have a heaven below as well as a heaven above? Would you comprehend with all saints what are the heights and depths and know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge? Would you receive an abundant entrance into the joy of your Lord? Then come ye out from among them and be ye separate and touch not the unclean thing. Would you attain the full assurance of faith? You cannot gain it while you commune with sinners. Would you flame with vehement love? Your love will be damped by the drenching of godless society. You cannot become a great Christian. You may be a babe in grace, but you can never be a perfect man in Christ Jesus while you yield yourself to the worldly maxims and modes of business of men of the world. It is ill for an heir of heaven to be a great friend with the heirs of hell. It has a bad look when a courtier is too intimate with his king's enemies. Even small inconsistencies are dangerous. Little thorns make great blisters. Little moths destroy fine garments. And little frivialities and little rogueries will rob religion of a thousand joys. Oh, professor, that is professor of Christ, too little separated from sinners, you know not what you lose by your conformity to the world. It cuts the tendons of your strength and makes you creep where you ought to run. Then for your own comfort's sake and for the sake of your growth in grace, if you be a Christian, be a Christian and be a marked and distinct one. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank You for this wake-up call. Thank You for challenging me and my spiritual family so that we might be those who are not conformed to this world. Lord, we know that this negative prohibition occurs in this text of Romans 12 too because at least... There's a possibility of its occurrence. But little by little, with these categories we've portrayed today, that we look at ourselves from one month or year to the next, and we ask the question, what have I been doing? What have I been watching? Where have I been going? What have... I have, what have I been allowing my eyes and ears and mouth and life and actions to be conformed to? Oh, Father, allow us to be living as a sacrifice, giving to You our spiritual, our reasonable, our logical worship 
And may You ever protect us and give us the resources that are ours in Christ to not be conformed to the world. May it be so. So that we might be not a mere Christian, but a marked and distinct one. For the Savior's glory we pray. Amen.